Job 2, 11-13 Now when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all this adversity that had happened to him, each of them came from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust into the air and on his head. Then they sat on the ground with him seven days and nights, but no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. Hey there, church family. It's good to have an opportunity to open God's Word with you in the book of Job, uh, chapter 2 and beyond a little bit. Uh, if you're new, just joining us, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors of Sound City Bible Church, and uh, we are going through the book of Job, and we're just about to turn a corner. You know, these, these first couple of chapters, uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago, we were going to go really slowly through them because there's a lot of information in them that helps us understand what is going on in the rest of the book. And so now, uh, today, and, and then kind of beyond, we're going to really start to speed up. It's not because we don't want to look at every single word in the book of Job. I, I want to encourage you actually to read ahead. Please read through the book of Job and please um, email me or your community group leader or whomever, whatever questions come up, because it is a challenging book that raises a lot of questions. But I can say that the, the, the middle chunk of the book of Job really goes through some cycles that are highly repetitive, and it's, it's better, in my opinion, to try to teach through the book of Job um, through some different tools that will help you understand when you get to those middle chapters, the, the arguments and the speeches between Job and his friends, these tools will help you understand how to read it and how to understand it. And so the tools, you know, the first tool we looked at in, in week one was the context tool that this is an ancient story. This is an ancient book that takes place outside of the land of Israel. So there's no covenant. There's no clearly defined relationship between these people and God. And so they're left guessing. And one of the reasons why there's so much confusion about the book of Job and confusion even within the book of Job is there's a lack of clarity, a lack of defined relationship through covenant. Then, in week two, we looked at the supernatural perspective, the Satan, the sons of God, the, the spiritual realm that's happening all around us, and, and the idea that we, as human beings in this earth, are not living in a closed system. We're not living in an ant farm. We're living in a world that God sovereignly rules over, and there are spiritual forces at work that do affect our lives. And then last week, Pastor Jason opened the door into this conversation into the idea of it's so easy to fall into a transactional approach to relationship with God. You give me something, I give you something. We, we deal with God like we're bargaining. And yet what God wants is to have a relationship of love and grace with us. And that transactional approach that, that he talked about last week is going to come up again in a number of different things that we look at. But, but we've got these these three key interpretive tools in front of us, no covenant, supernatural worldview, and the idea of transactional relationship. And so that can help us today as we start to look at kind of one of the really key questions that is raised by the book of Job. So I want to address one very simple, one very key, crucial question, not only for the book of Job, but for us as people of faith in the community of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together. And I'm going to ask that question, Lord, 
Would you help me today to teach that which is in line with the truth of your word? Lord, would you guide my, my speech? Would you direct my, my words? I, I want to speak only those things that are in line with the fullness of the truth of your word. And Lord, would you give us each um, hearts that are soft and teachable? And Lord, I pray that you give us hearts that are courageous to follow you as you would lead us into even places of great darkness and great pain. So would you help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So nobody likes to look at somebody else's pain. It's hard. It's hard to look at somebody who is in pain. I saw a, uh, a TV show recently where they showed, you know, those type of videos, like a, whether it's America's Funniest Home Videos or Fail Army, and you see a series of people, you know, getting hurt or falling downstairs or wiping out on a bicycle or whatever. And, and they, they showed two groups of people these videos, one that had a laugh track and had funny music going to it, and everyone was laughing. And they showed another group of people uh, just the raw videos without any laugh track and without any music, and everyone is just cringing and looking away. It's, it's hard to look at other people's pain. And even having conversations with, with medical professionals or firefighters or EMTs or police officers, people who are first responders going right to places of pain in people's lives, even they, maybe it's easier for them, but even they, in moments of transparency, have shared with me, man, it's so hard at times to see people suffering like this. I can do okay with physical pain in an emergency sort of situation. I'm a father of four. Uh, The age range is 15 years old through seven years old. And so we've had our fair share of injuries and stitches and and things like that. And if it's an emergency kind of moment, I do pretty good. But I was thinking this this last week, uh, my second daughter, Delaney, turned 14. And I was thinking about the day of her birth. She was a planned C-section. And I'd had a really busy season in, 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 in life and in ministry, and I'd been doing a remodel project in the house, and I was just exhausted, and we got up early, and I didn't eat breakfast, and we drove to the hospital, and I don't do so well in kind of calm moments of looking at other people's pain, and we're in the hospital, and, and they've got my wife kind of on the table, and there's like a shroud, and I'm sitting by her head, and the anesthesiologist is standing up by her head and by me, and he goes, hey, you know, hey, man, you're going to want to see this, right? This is the birth of your daughter. And I said, no, I don't do so well with blood. I don't think I need to see. And he goes, oh, come on. This is the birth of your daughter. And he kind of grabs my arm and lifts me up and he starts to pull down the shroud. And it all happened very fast. But I remember seeing what looked like a hand coming out of my wife's abdomen. And the next thing I know, I'm in another room being given smelling salts by a nurse because I flat out fainted. So I don't do so well with calm moments of trying to look at somebody's pain. But, but pastorally, as a pastor, I've had to. I've had to sit in hospital rooms with people who have gone through tremendous, like life-altering pain. And it's hard, but that's what God's called me to do. And uh, I've even had the, the tragic weight and privilege of Three different times being in the hospital with somebody or being in the home with somebody, I should say, in hospice or or their home, mere hours before they passed from this life into the next. And I remember, you know, one in particular, just looking at this, this, this man who was a member of our church and just looking at him, like, I, I just barely recognize him. He, he, he hardly looks like himself. I know it's him, but he looks like death already. And, and actually, you know what, friends, it's not just me as a pastor, or the, the elder team as pastors. It's, it's really all of us as followers of Jesus. Are we not called 
to be involved in each other's lives? Are we not called into relationship? Are we not called into community? And if we're in relationship and if we're in community, aren't we going to have opportunities to look at somebody else in pain, whether it's uh, literal physical pain or emotional pain or relational pain, some sort of hardship, we're going to have to look at it. And in the book of Job, this, this man Job is in incredible pain and distress. Not only has he lost his, his possessions and all of his wealth, but he's lost his children that he loved and cared about deeply. And now he's even lost his own physical health. And in chapter two, we see his wife comes to him with some advice. And then these three friends who become the focal point of the book come to him as well. And so I simply want to just ask a question today. What can we learn from the book of Job about what we should or shouldn't do when somebody in our lives, somebody in our lives is suffering? I want you to put yourself not in the position today of the sufferer, but of the friend or the wife. I want you to put yourself in a position where you now have to look at somebody else who might be in pain. So uh, going back to chapter two, verse seven, we looked at this a little bit last week. So the Satan, the Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. I texted a couple of medical professionals from our church this week and some articles and some things just, it's very interesting. Interesting. The amount of um, even like professional medical research has been done on the book of Job to try to figure out what his disease was. Nobody really knows, but it's interesting to, to chew on and to think about. Then Job was so miserable that he took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. To curse God is to incur his wrath and which would bring death. Now, she says this pretty blatantly horrible thing. But let's, let's just remember, just kind of benefit of the doubt for a moment. First of all, Job's wife is a part of what it means that he was an incredibly blessed man. Proverbs 18.22, a man who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So just to have a wife at all is a good thing according to the biblical worldview. And let's not forget, they had 10 kids. So something was okay in their relationship somewhere. Kids, if you don't understand what I mean, ask your parents about it later. But they have 10 kids and Psalm 127 says that children are a blessing from the Lord. And in the spirit of benefit of the doubt, she too has undergone suffering. She also has lost 10 children. She also has lost possessions and and livelihood and all of those sorts of things. So she too has been through some tremendous suffering and a case could be made that her, her phrase about cursing God and dying is actually motivated. In fact, there's a strong case to be made that her motivation is one of compassion where she's like, you are so miserable. You are in so much pain. I wish that you could just die so that your suffering could come to an end. 
I've heard those types of things from people, particularly about maybe elderly relatives who've lived a good long life and they know Jesus. And I've heard, I've even said that myself about certain relatives. I'm like, man, they've, they've lived a good life. They know the Lord. They're in so much pain. I wish that they could just pass from this life into the next and their pain would be alleviated. The problem is in her, uh, you know, compassionate uh, desire to see him freed from his suffering, she becomes a, a mouthpiece for the challenger. I mean, this is exactly what the Satan wants, is a quick win. Yep, Yahweh, I told you. If you let me hurt his body, he would certainly curse you to your face. And so she's just kind of blatantly, a, a, if you want to call it, just a tool for the enemy to come along and say, you should just curse God. But Job will have no such thing. He says, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. This is foolishness that you're saying here. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? And throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So Job is not particularly wild about what his wife comes to bring him in the, you know, in the respect to comfort. Her comfort isn't very comforting. Now, verse 11, the friends when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all this adversity that had happened to him, each of them came together from his home. And now you have to think, you know, this is not in the days of the internet, so communication is not going out instantly. And, and however they got word, they got word, and they had to prepare things, and they had to travel. Uh, in chapter 7, Job talks about how he wasted away for many months. And so his suffering is not just... Uh, you know, it's not just a day, it's an ongoing prolonged period of months, possibly even years worth of physical suffering. Now these friends, it says they met together to go and sympathize with him and to comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. I've, I've had that experience with visiting people near the end of their life. They could barely recognize him and they wept aloud. And each man tore his robe and threw dust into the air and on his head. Again, these are uh, symbols of mourning in the ancient Near Eastern world. And then they sat on the ground with him. They got down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, but no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. Okay, a few things about these friends, because we are going to be focused over these next few weeks on the friends and their theology. And I'll get into their theology a little bit more in weeks to come. But for right now, let's, let's look at a few things. Number one, there's these three friends, but Eliphaz stands kind of as the ringleader or even as the, the figurehead. He's named first, which is always important in biblical literature. He speaks first when they get into these cycles of speeches. He's always the first one to speak. And actually, if you go to the end of the book of Job in chapter 42, he is by name corrected by God. God says, I'm angry with you and your two friends. So Eliphaz kind of stands as the, the singular representative. Eliphaz the Temanite. Eliphaz from the city of Teman. So that tells us another little clue that they are supposedly wise men from the east. 
We don't really know exactly where Bildad and Zohar, Zophar are from. We can kind of get some clues about the, the cities that are mentioned, but we do know with more uh, with more certainty, where Taman is, it's a city in the land of Edom, which would be kind of north and east of Israel. It's, 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 it's a known territory. It's a known region kind of throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And Edom has a reputation. Edom is known for being a place of wise men and wisdom. If you go read the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Obadiah, two different places in the Hebrew scriptures, these prophets pronounce judgment against the land of Edom. Actually, one of them, I believe it's Jeremiah, even mentions the city of Teman by name. And when they're giving these judgments, they have this, they have this phrase of something along the lines of, where's all your wisdom now? When the judgment of God comes, where are all your wise men? Where's all of your wisdom? And so, We're to understand these three men should be coming with great wisdom to share with Job. That's another key that's coming up that we'll get to more. I don't want to get too far off this, but let's, but let's give these friends a benefit of the doubt. I know that you, if you're, if you're familiar with Job, you know that things are not going to go particularly well, but give them the benefit of the doubt. At least they came. When they got word, you, you've had this experience where you've heard about someone suffering, you've witnessed some painful, awkward situation, and, and it's your, kind of internal desire to maybe shrink back a little bit, they at least came and it says they came to sympathize with him and to comfort him. They wept aloud. They joined him in the the tearing of their clothes and throwing dirt in the air and on their heads. They, They stayed with him. They didn't just, you know, drop off, you know, some enchiladas and then leave. They stayed. They sat with him. And I think they maybe at least tried to be sensitive to him. And there's just a quick little moment on the idea of their silence because it says they went for seven days. No one spoke a word to him. And the reason why is they saw that his suffering was very intense. And so this, this idea of being silent, they just, they went to the suffering guy and they were just silent for a long time. There's a couple of perspectives on it. Number one, Probably the most common or the most popular perspective that you'll hear is it was an act of kindness for them to just be quiet, to just listen, to just weep with the one who's weeping and to just not try to say too much. There's another perspective, though, when you start to look at some of the clues there in the text that that their silence is almost like they're treating Job as if he were already dead. The idea of dust, right? From dust you'll, from dust you come and to dust you'll return. They put dust up in the air. They put dust on their heads. They sat on the ground. You will, you will go into the ground on the day of your death. And then maybe most compellingly is really all throughout the Bible. You can see that when somebody dies, the most common, the most traditional length of time for the period of official mourning, of weeping, of grieving is seven days a traditional seven-day period of mourning. A case could be made, another perspective could be that in their silence, they're treating Job as though he were already as good as dead. Christopher Ash, one of the commentaries uh, that I've been uh, greatly benefited by in this, in this study, he says this, while their silence may initially have been appropriate, it seems unlikely that it continued so. To sit quietly with a sufferer, to to hold their hand, to listen patiently as he or she pours out his or her grief is one thing. 
But this silence is hugely extended. To refuse to speak a word to a sufferer for seven days and seven nights is, is eerie and not comforting. It's as if they call for the hearse and sit by Job with the coffin open and ready for him. There is no point in talking to a corpse. One just weeps by it. To them, Job is no longer a living person. Interesting thought. Either way, one thing that we're confident of is once they do start talking, they make matters worse. <laughs> and Job, Job is not impressed. And you can, you can kind of keep reading through a few highlights. Job chapter 16, verse 2 and 3. Job says to the, the friends, I have heard many things like these. You are all miserable comforters. Is there no end to your empty words? What, what provokes you that you continue testifying? The, the word for empty, empty words, uh, is actually the Hebrew word for wind or windy words. Some translations say that. Is there no end to your windy words? Uh, basically, he's calling them windbags. Like, who is torturing you and making you just continue to talk? Or chapter 12, verse 2, uh, there's a bit of biting sarcasm from Job when Job says to the friends, he goes, wow, no doubt you are the people. Like, you're the man, you're the people, and wisdom will die with you. Like, once you fellas are gone, there is no more wisdom left on the earth. Little, little sarcasm out of pain there from Job. And then Job chapter 19, less, uh, verse 2, less, less funny and just more heartbreaking. He says, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? So Job's not impressed by their help either. And as I mentioned in chapter 42, God is not impressed. He says, I'm, I'm angry, Eliphaz, with you and your two friends, for you've just not spoken the truth about me the way that my servant Job has. Is there a way to categorize how they get it so wrong. I, I think this is, this is a simple sort of way of looking at it, but I want to just offer you kind of two general things that the, the wife and the friends represent in how not to go about comforting someone. For the wife, I'm going to use the word alleviation. Pain alleviation she just wants Job to die so that he can be free from his pain. Now, let me say this. It is not wrong to seek to alleviate someone's pain or suffering. The book of Proverbs, also wisdom literature, says, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. This, by the way, is the same book of Proverbs that warns about the many dangers of alcohol, says there's a purpose for it to help numb the pain for somebody who's like in great distress. For us, maybe the most uh, uh, close parallel might be, look, somebody is really hurting and really suffering. They need medicine. We have, we have ways that we can help alleviate people's pain and people's suffering. It is not a sin to seek to alleviate someone's pain, but it is not okay to do something sinful to alleviate that pain. Curse God and die. And he says, this is foolishness. That is not a way that we, as, as covenant people of God, are to alleviate pain. There are things that are in bounds, but, but 
how many of you know, whether it's your own life or the people that you've been around, when, when someone is in pain, when someone is hurting, it is far too easy to run to sinful things in order to alleviate that pain. There's a difference between, uh, you know, uh, seeking to find some solace and find some comfort and then running into sin. I can relate to this as a Christian in my own life and you are going to be different from me, but there's, there's ways that we seek to escape from our pain. There's ways that we seek to numb the pain, whether it's shopping or just binge watching TV or drunkenness or drug use or sexual immorality, things that just in our pain and in our suffering, we think is going to bring some sort of relief for a moment. But friends, we all know that though sin tastes sweet in the moment, it leaves behind the foulest and most bitter taste in your mouth that you could possibly imagine. And I can relate to this as a pastor as well. There are times when I'm looking at somebody who's in pain, I'm looking at somebody who's suffering, and there is a part of me, the, the, the sympathetic side to me that just wishes, man, I wish they could just not have this pain. Looking at someone in, in a really, just a really heartbreaking uh, marriage that's just not, it's just not going well. But it's not a, it's not like a, 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 a one of the areas where the scripture would give allowance for divorce. And so it's like, man, it's really hard, but we got to fight through this. Or, or somebody who's just got all sorts of physical ailments and then they want to use illicit drugs or things. And just, it is hard. I can just admit as a, as a Christian and as a, a person who at least has some level of empathy and sympathy in my heart, it's hard to look at somebody who is in pain, but then try to hold the line. But I have to remember, you have to remember that pain alleviation is not the primary goal. Christ likeness and, and union with God is the goal. And God is so good and he's so powerful that he can and he does use all sorts of pains and hardships in our lives to make us more like him and to draw us closer to him. And, and we also have to remember that if we're looking at somebody suffering to just say, well, I guess go ahead and, and you, know, fulf, you know, fulfill your desires, follow your heart, you know, it'll help you with the pain. We're actually causing them great spiritual harm. So, alleviation. Now the friends, the friends are much more center stage. Job's wife makes this one little brief appearance. She appears at the end as well when they have 10 more kids. So that's 20 kids. So apparently their relationship gets back on track. Job's friends, if, if her problem is alleviation, their problem is explanation. They're going to explain the pain away. Whoa, oh, so many words, so many thoughts, so much philosophy, so many ideas. Now, again, there is nothing wrong with seeking explanation for the reasons why things are in life. Ecclesiastes chapter one, other wisdom literature, Solomon writes, I applied my heart to, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I applied myself to just to ask the question why a lot. It's, it's good. It's good to ask questions. It's good to, to want to try to understand. It's natural to seek an explanation, but our ability as finite human creatures to truly and fully understand the why is very limited. I want to I want to introduce a, a big word to you that some of you may not be familiar with. The word is theodicy. 
Some of you are familiar, familiar with the word theology, which is uh, words about God, the study of God. Theodicy is different than theology. Theodicy is demanding that we, we have an explanation from God on what he's doing. God giving a grand account for himself. Theodicy. And oftentimes when we're in places of pain and suffering, that's what we want. We want theodicy. Explain yourself, God. What the heck is going on? My, my precious little first grader with all of the, the COVID-19 stuff, just, you know, a month or two ago, she's sitting in the backseat of the car. She goes, I wish I could just understand what God is doing in all of this. What a sweet, precious sort of a heart. But it's, it's very common for us to want God to have to give himself an explanation. But the problem is we can't handle it. Tim Keller uh, Tim Keller writes in his book, um, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he, he says, Alvin Plantiga, he, he quotes this guy, Alvin Plantiga, who's a Christian philosopher. Plantiga himself wrote, quote, I must say that most attempts to explain why God permits evil, theodicies as we may call them, strike me as tepid, shallow, and ultimately frivolous. That's the end of Plantiga. Keller goes on, we can add to these warnings the book of Job itself. Surely one of the messages, as we will see, is that it is both futile and inappropriate to assume that any human mind could comprehend all the reasons God might have for any instance of pain and sorrow, let alone for all evil. And it may be that the Bible itself warns us not to try to construct these theories. It is not wrong to ask why, friends. It's, it's not. It's not wrong to ask why. But it is wrong to assume that you could actually comprehend and understand all of what is going on in God's ruling of the universe. It's, it's a meager analogy. But for those of you with young kids who've had to have them to, to get a shot or had to take them in to, to get a stitch or had to take them in for some sort of medical procedure and they're going through this thing and they just hate it and they're miserable and they're mad at you and how could you do this to me? But you know that there are things in this pain that are for their ultimate good. So, so let me put us back in the, the friend's chair. Again, we're looking at somebody who's in pain. We're looking at somebody who is suffering. That is not the time to start trying to go into theodicies, to start going into explanations. That is not the time to start showing up and lecturing them about what they did or didn't do wrong. You are now putting an additional burden on a sufferer that they cannot bear. There, there might be a time for explanation. It's beforehand, or it might be a time for explanation a long time afterward. But you don't put somebody who just got in a car wreck yesterday in physical therapy. They need some time to just be comforted and healed. And so I want to ask you, which one of these two ditches would you maybe gravitate toward? If there's this, there's this ditch of alleviation, some of you are more, um, you're more emotional. You're more sympathetic. You're more compassionate. You might even, and, and sociological studies back this up, you might even lean more left politically, and you might be 
tempted to go to this ditch of lowering the standards of what God says is right and wrong because in your sympathy, you feel like you want to help someone. Well, they just, man, they're just miserable. Why can't they just, you know, be with who they want to be with? Why can't they just, you know, ingest what they want to ingest? Why can't they just do those things? Because your sympathy is leading you to a false version of pain alleviation. Now, on the other side, some of you, you're a little more... Uh, what we might say left-brained, even though that's really a fallacy. You're more logical. You're more, uh, you know, kind of uh, detail-oriented or thoughtful or more linear. You're, you're maybe less empathetic. And again, sociologically, uh, you might lean a little bit more right on the political sort of spectrum. And, and when you see problems, you want to come in with all the, with all the empathy of a, of a porcupine and just come in like, well, let's just, you know, figure this out. Let me solve. And let's, let me talk to you about, well, you shouldn't have, well, you shouldn't have done that. Obviously it's the, some of you parents, you know, this, this temptation, your kid, you know, does something dumb and then they're weeping and they're crying. Like, what did I tell you about writing a cardboard box down the stairs? It's like, not right now. Just give them a hug. You can lecture them in 15 minutes. It'll be okay. But right now is the time to enter into love or compassion. So which, which ditch might you be more prone to? Which side might you fall into when it comes to relating to people in pain? Now, I want to push pause for a minute here. I want to push pause because if I'm being honest, we've kind of teased out of Job maybe as much as we can at this moment. But as Christians, there's more that needs to be said. Because though Job's suffering is very great, we are aware of an even greater suffering. The prophet Isaiah writes before Jesus comes, he, he talks about Jesus as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and, and he, he, he writes about, um, about him being despised and rejected by men, and, and he, he talks about Jesus as one from whom people turn away from. We hide our faces. It's, it's too painful to look at. I like the way the, the New Living Translation puts it. Isaiah 53.3, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. You have never looked upon someone who has suffered as much as Jesus of Nazareth. That includes Job. That includes the person that you know who has suffered the most. You've never been a witness of suffering as much as we have witnessed suffering at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, Jesus took all of our shame upon himself. He was, he was stripped naked. He was He was humiliated. He was spit upon. People walked by and they mocked him and they hurled insults at him. He was was treated with ultimate shame. And he had physical pain. He didn't have the boils of Job, but he did have the flesh whipped from his back and a crown of thorns embedded in his scalp and and nails driven through his hands and through his feet. He underwent tremendous physical suffering. He underwent relational suffering as friends and disciples and family members all fled and and turned away from him. And then the, the deepest suffering of all, the relational spiritual suffering of his 
father turning his back upon him. And and Jesus did all of this to redeem fallen humanity. And when presented with these couple of ditches that I've presented before you today, Jesus did not go down either one. Jesus had an opportunity to go down the path of pain alleviation. He, he was offered in Matthew chapter 26. He was offered, sorry, Matthew chapter 27. He was offered wine to drink. Wine that would have helped numb the pain. Something that even the book of Proverbs said is allowable to do. And yet Jesus did not taste the wine that was offered to him by the soldiers. Because just a chapter earlier in Matthew 26, he asked the father if it would be possible to not drink the cup of the wine of God's wrath. And yet he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus did not taste the wine of pain alleviation. Instead, he drank the full strength wine of the wrath of God, the wrath that you and I deserve for our sin and foolishness and rebellion. And in Jesus, Jesus did ask the question why on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, he cried out in a loud voice, Ele, Ele, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Again, it is natural to want to seek an explanation. And yet two verses later, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And the scripture says he yielded up his very spirit to his father. That Jesus did not give in to the temptation to demand a full explanation right then and there from his father. He trusted his father and did not go down the path of explanation. Jesus suffered for us. We, we often talk about it in this way that Jesus suffered for us so that, so that we could know comfort and, and, and when we go through suffering and hardship. And that is, that is absolutely true. But think about it from the, from the other lens, the lens that we've been looking at things today, that Jesus suffered and died so that we can look upon other people who are suffering and in pain with compassion that comes from Jesus himself. Because you've never looked at any suffering as horrific as the the suffering of Jesus Christ. And maybe might I humbly suggest that one of the reasons you might not be very good at helping people when they're suffering is you haven't looked deeply enough at the horrors of the cross. If you've looked at the horrors of the cross, you can then go to your family member or to your friend or the person in your small group in their suffering and you can say, man, they're hurting, they're in pain, but I've looked upon the sufferings of Christ and I've been redeemed by those sufferings and so God can grant me the courage to run right in and help them. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says that he, he talks about God can comfort us in all our afflictions so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows, overflows onto other people. The more you look at the sufferings of Christ, the redemptive sufferings of Christ for you, the more you will be able to just run right in to those who are are hurting and in pain. 
Whether you're naturally good at it or not, whether you're naturally, you know, a wise counselor or, or not, you will be able to go into the hurts and the pains of other, others with the mercy of Jesus Christ. So let me do this. Let me, let me just close by offering some practical application. Let me offer some practical application from both from the book of Job, but just uh, other places in the scripture and, and just kind of life observations. I've got four do's and four don'ts. Okay. And there's much more that could be said. And I want you guys to talk about this, uh, this week in your homes and in your small groups. But, but for now, let me just, let me just offer a few thoughts. Number one, do pray. You can always pray. And before you try to run in to help somebody who's suffering, please do not neglect the most important first step, which is to just pray. Pray for God's will to be done. Always pray in alignment with God's will. But you can be bold and ask, Lord, would you please heal this person? And I would even encourage you, don't, don't say you will pray. Pray. I've tried to make it into a habit when I learn about things, or when people text me things, or I find out stuff, to just whatever I'm doing, to stop right then and there and spend a minute or two just praying to the Lord because I'm not always very good at remembering things uh, later on. Number two, do engage. That's one of the good things we can learn from Job's friends is they, they engaged. They made some messes once they got there, but, but, but you, you don't have anything to fear and you don't have to be the hero and you don't have to be the savior, but you can engage. You can step into the mess and just, and just be there. And number three, do speak love. Let's, let's not do the, the, the overly long silence of Job's friends. Do speak love. You can say things like, man, I love you. I am so sorry. I know this hurts. God loves you. I'm here for you. And number four, you can speak love. Don't go into solving, but you do speak love. But, and, and number four, do offer practical help that will alleviate the pain. Do offer practical help that will alleviate the pain. Let me just say, by the way, um, I've noticed something over the last year or so, year and a half, that I, I don't exactly know how to fix. If any of you guys can help me fix this, I'm, I'm all ears. But I've noticed that a lot of times when somebody's going through a hard time, I will say or others will say, hey, if you need anything, let me know. And I've just noticed that it feels unfair. It's like I've now put a task on you. I've now given you a chore. Hey, you have to tell me what you want or need. The problem is, is a lot of times when people are suffering, they don't actually know what they want. So, so maybe it's just like, hey, what night could I bring you a meal? Or, hey, would it be helpful for me to mow your lawn? Or, hey, here's $300 or whatever. Like just not, not hey, here's a bag of clothes I was going to take to Goodwill. Don't give them a chore. Give them money or practical help that will help alleviate their pain. Hey, let me take the kids for a night and, and, and you and your spouse can have a date night. Let me just help you in some practical ways, God-honoring ways to help alleviate the pain. Four don'ts. Number one, do not try to solve the problem. There's a time to build up your theology and even to dip your toes into certain types of theodicies, and that is not in the middle of a big giant crisis. You do that stuff beforehand or a long time after. Don't go in. Just listen. By the way, this can be really hard for some of you, fixers, particularly you fixers. Um, they might, the person who's suffering might say some not good things. It's pretty common. They might say some things that, ooh, you know, raise your eyebrows, freak you out a little bit. Don't feel the need to jump on every single one of those and pounce on every single one of those things. But just, but listen and respond with God's love and with his peace. Number two, do not offer false hope. 
This one's not directly from the book of Job. It's just from the book of life that I've experienced and so many of you have. You hear things like, well, you know, this too shall pass. Oh, things are going to get better. Friends, the problem is, and we're going to deal with this at the very end of the book of Job, we don't always, we are not guaranteed a happy ending in this life. We are guaranteed that the end of the story for us as Christians will be beautiful because we'll be in the presence of God forever, but we're not guaranteed, uh, you know, that the immediate source of our suffering right now is going to pass. It might kill them. So don't offer false hope. Instead, offer the true hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three, please do not drop cliches. Uh, This is kind of the whole like, you know, I'm just lob a Bible verse or lob a little saying over there without really entering in. So a great example of this is, I mean, the classic verse, Romans, Romans 8, 28, you know, all things work together for the good of those who love God and call according to, call according to his purposes, right? That is like bedrock, absolutely foundational, unshakable biblical truth. But there's a way to say that to someone. There's a way to remind someone of that bedrock truth where you're like entering in and you're saying like, I know that this gets used as a bumper sticker sometimes, but it is truly our hope versus like, well, you know, all things work together for good. Like there's a way to say it, your tone, your, your expression on your face, the words that go around it. There's a way that's just like, well, here's a little cliche. Here's a little Bible verse to think about as opposed to saying, friend, I am broken with you. And And our only hope is that God will work this together in some way. I don't even know how, but he's going to work it together for our good and for his glory. And then number four, do not encourage sin. This is for the more compassionate minded among us that, that it's really hard, but you've got to remember that it won't fix anything and it will cause more problems than it solves. Friends, there's plenty of opportunities right now to be around hurting and suffering people. You might yourself be hurting and suffering, but even in your hurting and your suffering, the word of God says that you can experience Christ's love in such a way that it then extends out to other people. And so my prayer is that God will make us as individuals, God will make us as a church community wiser than Job's wife and friends wise, wiser than the world about how we can enter into the hurt and the pains of others and offer them the comfort of Christ. Lord, would you let that be true about us as a church community? Would you help us to love each other well? When we see somebody who's in pain, would we not shrink back? Would we run towards them, not in our own confidence, but in the confidence that comes from just staring at the the, the horror and the tragedy of the cross? but knowing that you overcame death itself. And Lord, would you help this even be a witness to the world? Would you help our, the way that we comfort each other, the way that we love each other, would you let that be a witness to an unbelieving world that needs to know true comfort and not just some sort of explanation or some sort of pain alleviation? So would you help our love for each other to be a a missional uh, evangelistic witness to the watching world? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.